0: The Women in Agile podcast series amplifies the voices of outstanding women in the Agile community. We're dedicated to sharing the wisdom and inspiration our community has to offer by telling our stories, being thought leaders, and having open conversations with our allies. This series is brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile organization and Accenture Solutions IQ. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. I'm your host, Leslie Morse, and today we are chatting with Andrea Goulet. Andrea is the CEO of Corgi Bytes, a consultancy that specializes in modernizing software. She's also the founder of LegacyCode.rocks, which is a community of people that love remodeling applications. As an industry-recognized expert on all things related to modernizing systems, she's often found speaking for groups, training, or podcasting on the topic. The true focus here is making software more stable. Stable, scalable, and secure, all while helping clients generate revenue, lower operating costs, and reducing risks. Andrea, thanks for being with me today. Thanks for having me. Just in our prep chat um, leading up to starting the the recording, I'm like, the energy here is great. This is going to be a fun chat. (laughs)
1: Awesome. I think so too.
0: Yeah. So what I love starting off with people is how did you find Agile? What is that story like for you?
1: Yeah, I have kind of an interesting and kind of probably not normal one. So I went to my high school reunion. I was working as a marketing person. I had my background is in copywriting. I worked in agencies, I was a freelance writer and I worked mostly on web content so I would help small businesses create their websites and things like that. And there was this guy from high school, we were friends and he came up to me and said, "Every time I Google your marketing problem because I like want to create software using agile and XP. And I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. He (laughs) said, but every time I Google, like how to do a marketing thing, your blog comes up and seeing as how I've known you for 20 years and we worked together pretty well, I think you should be my business partner. And it, you know, we went through the negotiations and things like that. And I was like, yeah, I, I love tech. I don't know a lot about it. This sounds really interesting. And, um, it was fascinating because my, my first experience with agile and and was as somebody who was very comfortable with waterfall and just, because that's the way things, the way,
0: especially in marketing,
1: marketing works really well. I think, you know, that's, that's probably why you have some resistance that, and I went to business school, which basically was waterfall training. Mm-hmm. It was how do you make the most widgets? It was how do you create a very efficient system where you can do the same thing over and over and over again and reduce waste? Like that's that's what I trained for and that's what had worked my entire career. And so when Scott came in, he's like, we need to fail fast. And like all of these, I was like, what are you talking about? No, we don't, <laughs> don't want to fail at all. <laughs> we want to mitigate risk, no yes, failure. <laughs> yes. So it, it took me several years to finally have it click. And then once it did, now I'm like, oh, y'all, you don't even understand. Like, So now I think I have a lot of empathy and can talk to people who have a traditional business background about that mindset shift. Um, oh, and then an interesting thing too was that uh, a few years after S- Scott and I ran the business together, we also got married. <laughs> so <laughs> Um, I had extra motivation to learn these things. And it. May, I, I do say that had I not fallen in love with the guy, I probably would have quit because there was a lot of tension between like, I need an estimate and estimates don't serve us. And just all of the conflicts kind of that we hear between traditional business background and, you know, people who really understand agile, like we hit every single one of it and kind of had to navigate it and learn each other's stories and it emerged as something that was incredibly successful and like we came out so much better on the other side, but there was a lot of rumbling in the middle.
0: So, so through that and your sort of journey into playing in this agile space, when would you say you started identifying yourself as someone that was a member of the agile community?
1: Um, probably about 2015 and I joined the company in 2009. So yeah, it took, it took about six years.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, and I think there's so many of us, especially women, for whatever reason that I'm finding joined or like started really identifying with the community in that 2013 to 2015 range. Something magic was happening with women in our industry then, I think. Yeah,
1: for me, it was, um, I, I live about two hours outside of Washington, D.C. And so the big Agile conference was that year. Mm-hmm. And we were trying to get you know, speaking opportunities. And so we had pitched and Scott had gotten, um, he was going to talk, he had a talk called old code, new tricks. where We were talking about kind of how we modernize software. And given that, you know, travel was paid for, like it was cheap. We, Scott was like, you should go like, this is a really important conference for you because you're going to start to understand all of the stuff I've been trying to tell you, but just like have not had a good you know track record doing but the challenge was as I had 10 week old baby and I was nursing and so i Scott and I actually used agile practices to figure out how do we problem solve. And the end result was I wore, like Scott and I wore her. at
0: yeah. the
1: So there was even a hashtag like agile baby. That out. But I was so scared. I thought everybody, like I didn't know this community very well. I thought everybody was just going to like kick me out. And it was the complete opposite. It was very welcoming. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I found my people. Yes. And I didn't realize that what I was actually doing my entire career was being very adaptable, but by having structure that allowed you to be adaptable, but I had kind of changed the way of thinking. And then yeah. shortly after that, I read a first round review article that talked about, um, it's it's it was by Adam Pisoni from Yammer, and it was letting go of efficiency can accelerate your company. And it talked about the difference between efficiency and responsiveness, and like that was the like I read that it was really more written for business people and it was like something clicked. And then I read team of teams and it was very similar. And I understood like the nuances between complex systems and complicated systems and how, you know, a, series kind of approach, which I was used to, worked really well in a complicated system. But when you have a lot of dependencies, which is what we have in software, it's like that completely breaks down. So I started to, I had my lived experience first, and then I found the community. And then I found all this research and kind of narrative to layer it on. And now I'm like, I get it.
0: Let me share. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we're so thankful for having your voice as part of the community, especially as a strong woman that right has that technical acumen and talks about things like modernizing legacy software and because there's not as many of those voices. So before we dig into the actual software piece of it, I'm just kind of curious, since that 2015 timeframe, what have you noticed and observed and uh, what has kind of your journey been like as a woman within our community? Uh,
1: the first is that there are more of us, which is nice. The uh, very first conference that I went to was a developer conference. It was a Ruby conference. And I was, there were about 300, 400 people at the conference and I was one of two women. Wow. Wow. And I, I was, I had already signed up. Like we were running the business together. I had quit my corporate job, and then I was like, "What did I get myself into? <laughs> Where is everybody? Like, what, oh my gosh, this is a lot of white men in one room." And yeah. uh, and hadn't really been exposed to tech culture because in marketing it's very very diverse, very like, different. And you know, there's pretty much uh, gender parity. There's a lot of different backgrounds, ages, like. It, it just, it was a very huge shift. Um, I think especially, I still see not as many people um, of color, not as many women um, in the developer communities, um, but I do see more in the agile community. So my first kind of few, it was maybe like 20% and now I'm starting to see more like third. if I were to guess like 30 to 35, maybe 40% in some places. So it's it's nice to have, More representation. And so, you know, I can tell you there's a huge difference between going into a place and feeling like you're the only person. Like you don't want to stand up. Um, I do though. I think that's the thing, is I'm like, (laughs) I tend to just stand up. I'll give lightning talks when I feel really uncomfortable. Um, but it feels so much better. It's like, oh, I'm represented, I can see my people, like I can, I can participate as myself, instead of having to put on a mask or feel yeah. like I have to play a role. So, yeah,
0: absolutely. And I think that's, that's similar to what I've noticed as well. And, um, it's just, I, th- I think there's so many great things happening, um, and in all the voices and like, even just getting you here today for this conversation, um, I, there's a question I want to ask you about that later, but I want to dig into the software piece, like because there's like I'm seeing this like rabbit hole. I want to go down. No, 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 I can't. <laughs> it, is go it, <laughs> it is a rabbit hole. It is. It's definitely yeah. rabbit hole. A fun rabbit. Hole. <laughs> yes, a very fun rabbit hole. Like predicting the future and and all these sort of things that are going on. Okay, so software, mm-hmm. legacy systems specifically, and how like to go about modernizing those. Yeah. You met, you said Scott was his name, right? Yeah. Right. So that's how you got into it. But like, why that? Because there's so much that could be done. Yeah. But why this whole legacy systems thing? Well, it started
1: with Scott wanting to do it, right? Okay. So we had tried a couple of different business models before we landed on this. And I mean, the story is that we were sitting on the couch and we were watching This Old House. And this Scott, Old Application. <laughs> I, well, yeah. And so Scott goes, I want to do that. And I, I turned to him. I was like, you want to quit software and go into restoring houses? Like, <laughs> no, no. There is a huge difference between the way that the people on this old house approach their work as opposed to the people on HGTV where it's like flip and like do it really fast. Yep. And he said, I care about the craft. And he said, there's some nuances here around seamlessly integrating the new and the old. And he said, that is so fascinating to me, and I just want to create a business where that's all I do, and I wish I could do it. And so for me, I was like, wait, that's what you've been wanting to do? We've been wasting all of our time with (laughs) with these business models that didn't work out? Because to me, as a marketer, it's product market fit. Like, there's a lot of legacy code out there. There's a lot of software that needs to be improved. There's not a lot of people who love doing it. All right, if this is what you want to do, we will build our entire organization around it. And that's what we did. And uh, for, you know, the first year or so, it was just Scott. And then we said we got some other projects and I was like, well, let's see if there's any other people out here who like doing this type of work. And it turns out that the about 10% of developers love modernizing software like they I imagine love it's
0: it one of those things that you either love it in that way that yes. you're saying like oh this is my thing or like it's so polar opposite to that like just throw it all away I yes. don't want to deal with it never like make me look at it again
1: yeah. I'm, I have had people say that the work that we do makes them want to scratch their eyeballs out, right? So, But to the 10% of people who love it, there was no community. Scott was like, I constantly feel alone. I constantly feel like the only person in the room who is advocating for test-driven development, who like understands these things and just gets why it's important. And I understood that because my experience being the only woman in the room you know, it was like, I, that sucks to feel alone. Like let's build you a community. And so, um, yeah, actually at that conference, the one we were a baby to the agile 2015, that was where we met all these other amazing people who love it. And so just, I tend to be very much a community builder and somebody who loves people. And I noticed that all of these conversations were happening at the conference and was like, okay, how do we continue it? I was like, I'll toss a website up and just put it together a Slack channel and we can start there. And then, you know, that was four years ago and it's just continued. And now Scott and I have a podcast and, you know, we have weekly meetup groups virtually where people can talk about the challenges and the joys and, you know, the frustrations because <laughs> there's a lot of them. Um, and then, but I think it's the coming out on the other side and then feeling like I'm not alone you know, because this work is really, really, really important. You know, we're talking about the underpinnings of our society. Yes. You know, like, yeah.
0: You know, uh, our economy systems, would stop if we stopped, would. if we didn't pay attention to this stuff. It absolutely would. So, so
1: it's really important. And then how do we, talk about it, how do we sell it? How do we do the work right? You know, there's a lot kind of there in terms of the conversation. Um and we came up with the term, you know, like we noticed there were like maker. So there's like make magazine maker fair and make, 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 make. And so, you know, Scott and I had a brainstorming session of like all these different terms that we could use to kind of be a counterpoint to that. And so we came up with the term mender. And so it's just people who love mending something, like something that's already there. It's like love polishing, love restoring, love fixing,
0: love making it better. That analogy of like the remodeling of a home, do I like gut it all and rebuild new or do I actually restore it and integrate the two and and modernize that and bring it up to what's possible today um, is such a beautiful a metaphor and analogy to use for, for this sort of work. And you, you touch there, Andrea, on like the joys and the challenges. Cause I don't know as though all of us really, I think we only think of the challenges when we think of legacy <laughs> systems. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of those joys that you see people kind of tapping into as they do this yeah. work?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting. So on my podcast, the question that I ask everyone at the end is what do you love about legacy code? And um, so, you know, we've had about 50, 60 people on. And so I started doing some analysis. And the number one thing is I get to learn so much. Like you are constantly coming against problems that are seemingly intractable and figuring them out. And for some people, that is such an adrenaline rush where it's not so much the coming up with the idea, but it's being faced with this challenge, like, you know. We have the term like Heisenbug where it's this bug that like keeps coming up and like you can't find the root cause. And so for some people, like being able to dig really deeply into a system and then finally move that forward where those problems are no longer manifesting provides an immense amount of joy. Um, so, yeah, so learning was kind of the the number one thing. Like um, the second was that this work is really important. You know, if we look at Dan Pink and kind of his work on motivation, he wrote a book, Drive, and there's kind of three really important elements to motivation in the knowledge economy. And the, number one is purpose,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And I felt this. Like when I was working on some marketing apps, they felt really kind of shiny. It was like, I don't know, like, is anybody going to even use this? Like, But when we're getting into a banking system that – impacts millions of people around the world and helping to make sure that that system is more stable, that feels really important. And so there's this feeling of purpose, like the work that I'm doing is not just helping that company, but then also society as a whole. um, Because if we strengthen our underlying digital infrastructure you know, that's good for everyone, right. um, on so many levels. So, so it's kind of easy to tap into that purpose because the, the types of systems that need modernization, um, are valuable and they're contributing value to our society. So you you don't have to wait to prove that out.
0: Yeah. And do you, is that purpose driven motive and that, that sense of why, is that something that you all, as you're building this community, is it, um, converted people onto the bright side. I didn't want to call it the dark side.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, I think what we found is that the people who are attracted to this work already get it. Okay. Right. So there's not necessarily a lot of, um, at least with the practitioners, there's not a lot of convincing. It's just like, Oh my gosh, I found my people. Y'all think the same way. I think what we find is that there are people who struggle to articulate the value of why you would want to invest in modernization as opposed to, to completely bulldozing an app. And, you know, I think that over the past 10 years, the trend has been like, you know, 10 years ago, people were like, what? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Now you're starting to see terms like digital transformation and things where it's like, it's becoming a little bit more uh, well known within the space, Um in in kind of the way that we advocate for it is to, you know, do a migration safely. Like I think people have just experienced the pain of a hard cutoff, right? They've, They've experienced a project going over and now there's really good tooling. Like, so one of the ones that we used is Scientist by GitHub, which came out a few years ago. And like, that's a way to help us map, like just bit by bit and slowly change a system from within. The metaphor that I use sometimes is like, we don't, go to sleep one night and then magically transfer our consciousness into another corporeal form. Like, that's just not the way that our bodies are designed. But every seven to 10 years, nearly every cell in our body is replaced. Yep. And so that's a very good metaphor, like systems thinking and kind of biological systems kind of. So for people like me, where I'm just like, this is fascinating, Um, you know, looking at kind of how those systems naturally work in a, in a really good way and so looking at di- things change at different rates too. So like you're, you know, in your intestines, you know, those cells are replaced every week. Whereas the stuff in your bones, like they don't need to change every week. They take seven years, right? And so within a software system too, you see there are places that you need to change regularly that you know you are constantly working on. And then there's other things that are kind of more structural and like they don't change as often. So you know, we can use that metaphor as well of like you don't have to just bulldoze everything. And if if you do, there's an immense amount of risk because, you know, we see logic all the time in stored procedures and like just you you need to tangle that stuff out. And not all I,
0: of that legacy stuff has automated tests that will tell no, you if something's broken. Oh, very <laughs> low. Yeah, yes.
1: very low automated tests. And yeah. I think that's another thing, too, is like seeing the improvement of it. Like we um, we have one client where they came to us and like we use code climate a lot of times to kind of measure, you know, kind of the health of a system. And it's got like a grade. So it's like ABCDF. So they started with an F, like just they had like maybe 3% automated code coverage and just like, it was, you know, lots of complexity and stuff. Um, and then slowly over time, we just 0.2 percentage a week, like grade point average, you know, just over 18 months, they got to a B plus. And so being able to look back and say, wow, we took this system that was really complex and really brittle. And then we made it so much easier to work with and it took time, but it we did it very safely. Um, And looking back on that, I was like, wow, we we did that. Go us.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And what do you think as you're doing that work? Like what are some of the important principles for doing it well?
1: Yeah. So the number one, which is actually probably surprising, is the amount of empathy and communication that you need to have around a project. So um, it's kind of counterintuitive, but modernizing a legacy project is just as much about communication as it is about the code.
0: I was going to say, because you mentioned the complexity in that grading system, and I thought, I believe the most technical word I know is cyclomatic complexity, <laughs> which is yeah, some a measure big... of the degree of technical yes. debt and convolutedness that is in your yeah. system. And cyclomatic complexity does not sound very communicative or empathetic. Right.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. So so I think, you know, so empathy, you know, and this this is a whole other place where I could get, get really deep. But really, empathy is being able to. The way we define it um, is being able to proactively understand what somebody else is going to need, and then working to solve their problem proactively. So, you know, in that sense, traditional developers are highly skilled at that. It's and you know, from my background in marketing, we did so much in like target market analysis and segmentation and things like that. Like, There's a lot that you can do to really understand what somebody else is going to need. And a lot of times it's just gathering data and then pausing and saying, okay, how can I help the people on my team? How can I infuse, you know, really good rationale into the system of, like, why I made some of these decisions? And so the way that we suggest is, like, we we look at kind of different places around where there's communication debt in addition to technical debt. And so some of those things are, you know, on pull requests reviews or code reviews. Is it just a thumbs up rubber stamp and, like, looks good to me? Or is there actually, like, rich dialogue there where people are learning? Um, how rich are your commit messages, right? Like mm-hmm. this is something we see a lot because we love commit messages and think that that's one of the best places for documentation because it's so tightly coupled to the code base, but can it's outside define, of time. Will you
0: mm-hmm. define commit, mes- commit sure. message for those that don't know what it is? Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. So so a commit,
1: so when you when you have wrapped up kind of an idea and like a little block of I've written this software and I'm ready to push it out and deploy it, When you check it in, right, into your repository, you need to write a little message saying what What it is. What it checked in, yeah. Right? And so what we're noticing is that a lot of, you know, a lot of people, it's like, you know, they'll add some kind of acronym or something. And it's like, if I come back, you know, a year later, or I'm a new developer under the project, I don't know what that means, right? And um, so there's actually two pieces to a commit message. There's the title, which should be relatively short, maybe 70 characters or so, Right. But then there's also a description where if you've like changed something, but say you've run into constraints or like it it was really challenging or you wished you could have done something different, just writing up a few sentences of like, here's what I did and why.
0: I was going to say why to me there feels so so important, the context of why you made the change.
1: So important. Yeah. I mean, my background, and, and this is something that kind of I learned from my first career as a copywriter where, you know, my job was to write like taglines and things that were like seven words or less and the work there isn't yeah there's the brainstorming and coming up with the tagline but i would write paragraphs about why that particular tagline would work right and getting other people to understand what was in my head was a really important skill and a muscle that i flexed a lot so when you're in a code base that can be a very useful skill and I think this is the thing. It's like, I had, I was a copywriter for a decade. I understand like, oh, we're using, you know, the different tenses and we should be using second person here and error messages. And so there's some technical stuff there. And I think helping developers realize that communication and empathy is a skill as much as it is kind of something that people are born with, you know. And
0: um, it's, it's a learned skill. It
1: is a learned skill. Or it's it hilarious. it
0: can be a learned skill. Yeah. yeah.
1: I, I give a talk called Empathy as a Technical Skill fairly regularly, and um, I have a line in there about, you know, how many people in the room, like, emerge from the womb knowing how to code on the latest JavaScript framework. And I always get, like, one or two people who feel like they want to be Smart Alex and they raise their hand. <laughs> but, but Empathy is kind of similar. Like, there's some people who are born in it, like, they have kind of more sensitivity to it. Um but in terms of definitely like the intellectual side, like the, it's in the research, it's called cognitive empathy. The practice of learning about other people and then figuring out what they want and then actively helping them get what they want, like that's that's definitely a skill that's not something that you learn, and if you're not taught. And so you know, I think the biggest gap that I see is that in tradition, you know. So Scott and I both went to school in the late 90s, like college. Um, and so at the time, marketing people were told to sit in their booth over there. And, you know, software developers, it's like, this is a math intensive class. You don't need any people skills. <laughs> and, and with Scott, even at his school, collaborating in any way, shape or form on his projects was a uh, code of conduct violation.
0: Oh, wow. So he
1: learned, like, I need to be, like, only working on this myself. Talk about eye-shaped. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it was, like, these were kind of the cultures that we grew up in. And so now it's, like, my my mission is to help people like me who I used the term non-technical to describe myself for six years and, you know, even before that, like, especially when I was in the marketing world um, – help people understand that those are skills that you can attain. Right. And that labeling yourself non-technical means that you are actively choosing to not attain them. So what might that look like? And so now I call myself, I say, I'm less technical than some of the developers on my team or, you know, but then it becomes like less binary. It's more of a continuum.
0: Oh, it is absolutely a continuum. And then same. Oh, and I was just
1: going to say flip side, like same with, um, same with developers. Like, I run into a lot of people and they're like, I understand machines, but I don't understand people. That's not true. You just haven't practiced people skills, right? Yeah. And here I will teach you. And if we all work together and we create that overlap, that's where the magic happens. Yeah.
0: Well, it's, um, there's a theme of learning, right? You even went back to like the people that were super passionate about this. It's because they love the problem solving and learning of new things, right? And learning the communication skills and learning the empathy and learning the good patterns for how to go tackle these problems for those that are interested in learning more on this, whether it be the, I want to get more technical or the empathy as a technical skill or just more about modernizing legacy code, where will you point people to head?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, definitely the legacy code rocks community is, is a really, really useful place to just kind of talk to other people who are like that. Um, I think, you know, um, there are really good books. So like Michael Feather's um, kind of led the like his book. Working effectively with legacy code is is a really good one. Um, there's also the Pragmatic Programmer, uh, which is really good. They just came out with the 20th anniversary edition. I was lucky enough to be a reviewer, so you see my name on the back, which I feel really excited about. Yay! Um, and then uh, you know, like Josh Kuryevsky at Industrial Logic does a lot of really good work and some good content there on. Um, Uh, he calls, so he, his book that came out about 10 years ago is called refactoring to patterns. Um, and so it's got some really technical stuff. Um, but he's been working on some newer agile frameworks as well. Um, so yeah, I think he calls it modern agile. And so like just there's, there's kind of a a few different places to plug in. Um,
0: what are you doing, Andrea, for your own learning?
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. So lately I've been I've been speaking at a lot of conferences and so I, I love connecting to people. I'm I am an extrovert. I really, really no, love time really? right? <laughs> I know. I really love talking to people. So I think this is what I love about having a podcast is that I get to have amazing conversations with people and just like soak up what other people are doing. So I use my podcast a ton for learning and then also going to conferences and talking to people and, and learning. I, I have some videos that I learn and I try to like keep my technical skills up. Um, you know, but, but for me definitely. And then, um, another thing is trying to participate in mobs as much as possible. So mob programming was the, was the, thing that really turned my technical skills around. I was struggling on my own and I was just like beating up my head against the wall and just saying like, I can't do this. I am non-technical. Like I'm never going to get this. Some people were born learning how to program, not me. But then once I participated in a mob at Corgi Bites and we focus a lot on psychological safety and empathy and stuff. So once I was able to participate in a mob with people who were very, very, very skilled And I saw that they came up against problems and they didn't know, or like, you know, they had questions that made me feel more comfortable kind of asking questions and learning. And for me, like as an extrovert, I just, I learn a lot by being around people. It's very hard for me to just like take an online class and, and focus.
0: Yeah. And I think those mobbing environments are also such great ways to open up more, um, shared understanding across mm-hmm. agile teams, right? Because you would yeah. think, like, uh, like I personally am a business analyst by background, right? So you know, when I've been on agile teams, like I'm not there writing the software. I'm really focused on like the user stories and what, is, like, what do our customers really need and playing in that product ownership space. But sitting with the developers when they're actually writing it and being part of that conversation as it's happening is just like. Oh, like I didn't even get that you had to think about it that way. Well, now I know how I can explain it differently. Exactly. And you just, it's being able to see the problem from all those different dimensions yeah. at the same time.
1: Yeah. It's and I so think beautiful. Yeah. And there's a lot of value there from like, I played the role of product owner on one of our projects um, internally. And, you know, I didn't say a whole lot. You know, it was a lot of me learning, a lot of me driving and kind of like getting really excited. But there was one point where the developers were getting overly precise. We were dealing with a time issue, like we needed something to run and, you know, on a regular sequence. And they were getting down to the millisecond. And I was like, y'all, I I only need this down to the minute. like, And they're like, oh, okay, that saves us about four hours worth of work. Yep. And so just being able to say like, no, that's enough. I don't need you to go any further and over-engineer this. Just being there and giving them that feedback immediately because I saw it was mm-hmm. – was so powerful yeah. and then they said thank you so much and i was like oh i contributed yeah. this is great
0: yeah. i had that exact situation i'm getting to to be a product owner for some new operational software that our organization uses and it was time zones
1: they mm-hmm. they're
0: using it globally they're like but if you're in germany and the training class starts on the Eighth and you're looking at it in the morning in the classes in California, it's not the eight yet. I'm like, it doesn't matter. It's still the eighth. It, it can be in progress. We don't need to worry about the time zone. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I mean, that stuff that. gets
1: really, really tricky. Yeah. And I think that then it helps you build that empathy because as a product owner, like you know that if there's a time zone thing, that's gonna like suck up a lot of time because that's a hard problem. Yep. Right. And so just being able to recognize that. Whereas before, when I was only a user of software and I didn't Participate in its creation. It was all automagic then. Exactly. It was like, (laughs) I don't know, you just make the time zone work. Like so, so yeah. Yeah. So I think that's that's really goal is you know, empathy all around, where you know, people who have more traditional business backgrounds like you and me can have empathy for the developers and can understand why the things that they're complaining about are valid concerns. And then also on the other side where you know, people who code every day, like getting them to understand more about leaving their rationale behind or how their communication really impacts the health of their system and their code. Um, and so, you know, when we can all work together and create that space where ideas are flowing, that I, to me, that's agile because yeah. then you've got the, you've got the systems in place where then you can go really fast. Yeah. Talk
0: about being responsive. It's not Mm -hmm. necessarily efficient, but it's very responsive. It also happens to be efficient. Exactly. Uh, Yeah. 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 So two things, uh, Andrea, to kind of wrap us up, um, I'm going to go back to that rabbit hole that I wanted to go down a little bit earlier when we were sort of thinking about the role of women in, in the agile community. Um, if you had to like jump in a time machine and show up five years from now, What would you say is sort of your hope or dream for what you would experience as a woman within our community then?
1: Yeah, I would love to see um, not just more women. I think that's great. But I think that uh, we need to include people of color and especially women of color. Like um, we can't get so wrapped up in the gender that we forget about all of the other kind of – intersectionalities of, you know, diversity and inclusion and things like that. Um, So for me, it's that everyone, regardless of what they look like or what their background is, that everyone can show up and be their fullest and most authentic self and that they don't have to code switch. They don't have to pretend to be one person in one setting. They don't you know, and then put on a mask and try to be somebody different, that, that we've really worked on fostering an environment where when we're promoting women, we're not just promoting white women. We're including lots, you know, all sorts of different women in that conversation. And I think that that's, that's a place where we've got a lot of work to do. Um, but I think all of us are hopefully (laughs) engaged in that and, and helping to create those opportunities because when, when, everyone does have that opportunity it's it's amazing um and then people feel like they can contribute in their highest and best good um, and i think projects get the best work you know because people are engaged um so so that would be my hope
0: yeah. And, and and I love that you bring that forward, Andre, because that's another thing that we think when we're thinking about this Women in Agile podcast series, right? Making sure we get the diversity. So I had an amazing conversation with um, Aruna and Padmini recently that have been just so fantastic. I can't wait for those episodes to get launched. And so I'll actually use this as, a, as an invitation for people that... No other women, especially women of color and diverse backgrounds and perspectives that you think would be great to feature in one of our episodes, please email us at podcast at women in Um more of those ideas um and connections and introductions um are definitely appreciated. Yeah. And then Andrea, any or Andrea, sorry, any final thoughts you want to leave with us today?
1: Yeah, I think um you know when we're thinking about a legacy system the just the word legacy because in every other context the word legacy is a very positive word it's the legacy that i leave behind it's it's evidence that i existed and it's evidence of my ideas and my contributions and in the software space that's not so much right legacy has a negative connotation it's the stuff we don't like but by adding really good communication artifacts by really taking pride in your work then you are leaving behind a really good legacy, and that's something to be proud of. And it's something that somebody behind you can pick up the torch, because these systems that that need this, that these legacy systems, you know, they endure. You know, it's a and gift. It is a gift. Yeah. And so, so just recognizing that and kind of taking some pride in the work, um, I think that that kind of helps you feel a sense of ownership and and thinking of you know what is your legacy.
0: Yeah, that's that's great framing. To, to end us with. And that's something that can transcend beyond just legacy code. Mm-hmm. That's really a calling we can all rise up to mm-hmm. in the work that we do every day. Yeah. Yeah. Andrea, thank you so much for being here today. Thank I really appreciate it. Thank you for
1: having it. me. Oh my gosh. This like filled my, filled my extrovert bucket like to nothing. Start, start <laughs> it is. We're recording is. on a Monday.
0: It is. <laughs> I will be released is. on a Monday, but we're recording on a Monday. So it's a yes. good way to put fuel in the tank.
1: Yes. Thank you, Leslie.
0: You're welcome. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Women in Agile podcast series. It's brought to you in partnership from the Women in Agile nonprofit organization and Accenture Solutions IQ. We hope you've learned something new and invite you to tell a friend or a coworker about the podcast. You can go online to womeninagile.org to learn more about our initiatives and find additional inspiring podcast conversations. Thanks for listening to this Women in Agile podcast episode. Find more inspiring conversations by visiting womeninagile.org slash podcast, checking out the podcast series on iTunes, or visiting your podcast application of choice. If you have an idea for a topic, speaker, or feedback on an episode, please reach out to us via email through podcast at